ask now as we come before your word that you would teach us. Lord, that you would apply these to our hearts by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would produce fruit in us as we abide in your word. We ask this in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior. Amen. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. So one of the things about Matthew that he's been working on is showing Jesus Christ as the king. He had the royal lineage. He gives the law. He tells us how we're to live. Sermon on the Mount, tough stuff. So hard. Like, really? Love your enemy? Jesus? It's hard. I don't know if I can do this. What motivates me? What, what drives me? What, what makes me change from who I am to a person who does stuff like that? And part of what we're going to address today is some of those very things. What, what is the motivating factor for, for the believer? So, Matthew 13, he's been going through parables. We're going to pick up in verse 44 in Matthew 13. Verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Okay. So, parables. Now, we started uh, two weeks ago. There was the parable of the sower and the soils. And there's like the four soils. And kind of built into that was... was this conversation, why, Jesus, are you telling parables? Now, I don't know about you. I like the parables. I like these stories, and you get really get behind them, and, and you try and figure out, oh, what's he doing? And we like them. But um, imagine, try to put yourself in, like, their shoes a little bit. You traveled a couple days, expensive, hot, dusty, cranky kids, because you want to hear this, this, this prophet who's, who's speaking these great things. And you show up, okay, what do you have to say? And he's telling stories. Or you bring your sick kid and you're hoping the, the kid's like, hey, sick kid, sick kid. And he's telling stories. Or perhaps you're, you're a social zealot. You, you, you're tired of the corruption. You're tired of the hypocrisy. And you're hoping this guy, Jesus, is just going to flip the system and he's going to fix everything and he's telling stories. Or you're an intellectual, and you're, you're a thinker, a deep thinker, you're a scribe, you study the scriptures, and this word, and that word, and, and, and you're, you're, a, you're an elite, and you say, okay, Jesus, I'll give you a shot, what do you have for me? And he's telling you stories. So at some point, and you're, you're thinking like, okay, this you know, a couple stories, a couple illustrations, everybody likes an illustration, but it says that Jesus was speaking to the crowds in parables, and he said nothing to them without a parable. Like parable after parable after parable after parable. At some point, they've got to say, Jesus, enough. What are you doing? And so the disciples kind of come at that too. It's like, Jesus, hey, what are you, what are you talking about? Because that's the other thing. Some of the stories don't quite make sense. I mean, it makes sense to us because we've got the explanation. But, but, you know, there's the four soils. It's like the disciples say, hey, Jesus, do you uh, mind explaining what these soils are about? He said, oh, yeah. Hard soil, hard heart, and like the, the soil where the seeds choke it out. That's the people who are caught up with the cares of the world. 
You're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. It's kind of like when you watch a movie and there's like that clue, like that weird ending. You're like, what just happened? Wait, did you end? And, and you look at your friend. You're like, um, oh, okay, I know what happened. Uh, the top didn't stop spinning because of. And and your friend's like, no, 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 you don't, no, no. It's it's like this. And you have like two different interpretations of what the whole thing was about. And so you can imagine he's telling these stories like, well, I think, I'm not sure. I don't think I have enough information. I'm not sure what's going on. And so the disciples say, Jesus was going on. He explains it. And so we, of course, we got the whole story here in 13. We're like, oh, yeah, of course. These are this, that's that. But they didn't get that. They're walking away confused. Like, great story, but I don't get the point. So Jesus says to his disciples, look, there's a reason I'm doing this. He says in verse 11, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Because of the hardness of the heart, the truth is hidden from them. and He's not explaining things necessarily to them. But to those who are being saved, you're in that crowd, and there's something about it. It's just like pulling at your heart. Those who are being saved, it's strangely the power of God. Now, it's really helpful to us in chapter 13 that we're getting some of this inner dialogue. The disciples are going to say, Jesus can explain it, and then we, as not disciples, you know, the 12 disciples, are getting the explanation. Hey, this is really great. And so Jesus, like, so there's like, there's like this iteration. There's this one parable, and they say, can you explain that for us? He goes, oh, yeah. And he explains it. Okay, I see it. And there's another parable. And like, uh, hey, Jesus, can you explain that again? He goes, oh, yeah. And he explains it. Okay, we get it. But then by the time they get to the end of the chapter, he's giving them parables. He's not necessarily giving them explanations. He asks them, hey, are you getting it? And they're, oh, yeah, yeah, we got it. Because they get the paradigm. Like, he's, he's training them to see it in the right way. So he gives the disciples paradigm, he gives us a paradigm. And so I'm going like to jump all the way to the end of my passage that I'm supposed to be working on here. And look at verse 51. When he says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he doesn't question them. He really doesn't. He said, okay. Therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. who brings out his treasure what is new and what is old. And he's saying, look, you are being trained to understand what I'm talking about. You're with me, and you're seeing how I'm referring to the Old Testament as myself, as a fulfillment. You're, you're seeing it and hearing it, and one day it's going to be you. And one day it's going to be us, that as Christians who study the Word of God and we see the New Testament, Christ as a fulfillment of all these things in the Old Testament, we can look back at the Old Testament and say, hey, sit with your kids. Can I tell you about this proverb? And sometimes you're explaining it, and it probably sounded just like a Jewish papa and his little kids, like old. But then you can put Christ in there and say, but, you know, son, you can't do that. But here's how Christ helps us, and it's new, and it's fresh, and it's powerful. So this is kind of the first thing that we see. This, this is potentially, you have to understand, it's, we enjoy it, but to the people it's probably frustrating. It's probably getting a little scandalous. At some point, these people are going to turn on Jesus as a good teacher and ask for his death. The other thing I want to talk about before we get into these parables is, is the structure of how Jesus puts parables together. When I started seeing this, this is, like, this is what makes parables even more fun. It's really fun to get in there and like try to study this like little parable. Okay, kingdom, pearl. Okay, I'm with you. But then like he puts parable after parable after parable, and he starts like, creating a tapestry with a bigger idea behind it. So, so there's a reason why he's stringing these things together in the way that he's doing it. And so the big picture, I mean, obviously the unifying idea is the kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so he says, hey, you're my people. You're going to be part of my kingdom. You're going to have expectations. They may not be the right expectations. Let me prepare you. For them. 
And so he starts talking about the kingdom of heaven. And what's interesting about these verses and when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about the kingdom of heaven when it's here. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven as it's growing on this earth, as people are being joined to it. So it's like this, this age, you know, we try to get all fancy and give it like names like the church age, you know, after Jesus ascended, before he returned. What's going on now? So you get the parable of the four soils. Big picture. The gospel is going to be rejected by a lot of people. I mean, three out of four soils reject the, the message of the kingdom. So, and, and for various reasons, like hard hearts, joyful hearts, but don't like persecution, hearts getting choked out by cares of the world. Sounds like me, actually. Depend, depends on the day. Sounds like me. But by the grace of God, there's soil that receives the word and produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So even though there's a lot of rejection, there's a lot of fruit. I mean, imagine if you had a portfolio with all your stocks, right? And they're, okay, they're doing okay. But then like, like a quarter of your stock like, gives 100, like, 100 times its value. You're like, whoa, that's amazing. So in a sense, like, even though there's a lot of rejection, there's a lot of production. So as citizens of this kingdom... We share the word with people. We evangelize. For the most part, this is why I get. Uh huh. Really? Okay. Uh huh. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> like rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. And you start to say, like, God? Like, uh, power of God unto salvation. Can people start being saved now? Like, full scale, please? Like, what's going on? And, and you get tempted to think that what God said was going to happen is not happening. But you look at this, this verse and you say, oh, right. Lots of rejection, but then someone gets saved over here. Someone gets saved. Someone gets saved over here, and years start stacking up. And next thing you know, there's like a kingdom of people. Every single one of us is a story of God's grace in our lives. So don't don't fret, people of the kingdom, in the face of unbelief. He's bringing something glorious to pass that will outshine the greatest kingdom. This world has ever seen. We think it's America, but it'd be better than America. Then there's the parable. So there's the first parable. Then there's the parable of the wheat and the, the wheat and the weeds, wheat and the tares. I want to say tares, King James, isn't it? It's okay. The wheat and the weeds, where the kingdom of heaven is this crop where weeds look like wheat and wheat look like weeds, and you can't tell the two apart. And, and one you want to eat, and the other one you really don't want to eat. And so the point here is that the church can be filled with counterfeit people, hypocrites. I mean, there'll be whole churches of hypocrites. There'll be people in the congregation who look, smell, breathe, talk, act like Christians who are not Christians. And so what happens? You're in the church. You look at churches or you look at Christians. You look at the evil, evil, just straight up evil done by them. All in the name of God. And it turns you off. I wonder if there's really anything to this Christianity thing because they're behaving a lot like you know, fill in the blank, you know, your pet peeve or your you know, group that you despise. Sometimes you look at churches who are watching as neighbors suffer, and these churches either seem too content with their comfortable lives or they're too afraid of persecution to lift a finger, and, and so you start you start feeling like. Is there really anything to this? Like, Christians wouldn't be behaving this way. And, and then you're looking at churches who call good evil and evil good, and you're like, you know, I'm really not sure this whole Christianity thing is really what it's all chalked up to be. And so, you want, so you're tempted to, like, to throw the whole crop out. Like, just burn it all. But Jesus is telling us ahead of time, no, 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 no. That's exactly what it's going to look like. You think Satan's just going to let us have, like, a perfect holy, persecution-free, no people on the inside causing problems, church, no. For the sake of my people, I'll let this thrive. It'll produce fruits, but, you know, you're going to have problems. You're going to have counterfeits, so don't be surprised by that. And he'll bring justice. Don't worry. That day will come. And then, and then he's got these two quick parables, the uh, 
parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. Okay, so then what's going on? So he says, okay, look, what are you going to see? The kingdom's going to be rejected, but there'll be fruits. There's going to be counterfeits in the church, but it's going to be okay. It's going to bear fruit. And by the way, this is an unstoppable force. Small mustard seed in the ground. And it turns into this huge plant. I mean, think about it. It's got to germinate. It's got to poke up out of the ground. It's got all these other things competing for shade and light. And this thing just keeps growing and growing. And next thing you know, it's the biggest plant in the garden. It's an unstoppable force. That would be the kingdom. And he compares it to leaven hidden in the flour. You put it in there, and it just starts spreading and spreading and spreading and spreading. And like the, the kingdom's going to reach every square inch of this earth. God said concerning his Messiah and Isaiah, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. It's too light a thing that you preserve just Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is the kingdom that Jesus is creating. All right, now all these parables, these are the parables that he said to the crowds. And now there's a shift in audience. The next parables we're about to study, these are parables that he spoke to his disciples. In verse 36, it says that he left the crowds and went into the house. And then the disciples started a conversation. Hey, can you explain the weeds, please? Like, we're having problems. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he explains what's going to happen. He explains that at the end of the age, he's going to separate the wheat from the weeds. He's going to judge the unrighteousness. And then, verse 43, and we read it in Daniel. Verse 43, he says, at the end of the age, when Jesus comes back, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I remember when I heard that for the first time. <laughs> like, so embarrassing. If I was like 22. I'm like, what verse is that? I've never heard that before. <laughs> it's like I've been reading the Bible my whole life, right? 22. Shine like the sun? What? And it just like hits you. Imagine you're sitting in there, and Jesus is talking about how hard the kingdom's going to be, but you're one of the disciples, and Jesus is looking at you with absolute assurance in his eyes. You're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. Whoa. Whoa. Like, you can barely contain the beauty of it. I mean, you could try to wrap your head around what that's like. You can't, but you could try. What is that? And, and, and it's, it's thrilling. What do you mean by that, Jesus? Glory. And, and it's like, and so, you start, you start, and so your mind is like at this far off hope. And it's like, and then Jesus captures that moment. All excited. There's like the thrill in the heart. He grabs that moment. He says, the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure hidden in the field. Do you like this? Do you like what you're hearing? Do you like what you're seeing? Does it excite you? It's like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. And then he doubles down. Like he doesn't even take a break. He just does it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And who on finding a pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What is he getting at? This is valuable. This is glorious. You want it. You want to be there. You want to be in the kingdom of your Father where Jesus reigns and sin is gone and death is gone. And he says it's yours. It's going to cost you everything, but it's yours. But you know, funny about that, you really can't afford it. I mean, think about it. In both these cases, it's a steal. Pardon the phrase. It's not like a bad way. But it's a steal. That's what we say when we're shopping. Like You see something like, what? Captain Crunch for two bucks? What a steal, right? And like magnify that too. That's that grocery outlet, right? That's how you feel going to the grocery outlet. But just like magnify that. (laughs) So this guy finds a treasure. He sells everything he has. He goes, buys this field. So he's not buying the treasure at the worth of the treasure. He's buying the field. It's cheap compared to what that treasure costs. And when he gets that treasure, what? He's going to have about a thousand times what he's just spent. To buy the house. It's like good business. And it's, and it's assuming also that the pearl's kind of the same thing. It doesn't sound like this guy is buying the pearl at market price. Because he's willing to liquidate all his assets. Go buy this pearl. You don't liquidate all your assets for like a $5 mar- profit margin, right? You sell your assets because like you're going to turn around, go to a good buyer and say, hey, I've got the pearl for you. And then like you're rich. You're filthy rich. 
That's the inheritance given to the children of God. He calls us to surrender your life, every square inch of your life. And what you will get is infinitely more valuable than anything you've ever owned, anything you've ever enjoyed. It's more than that. Okay, so you've heard economists say like 40% of the world's health, wealth, health, ha, 40% of the world's wealth is owned by the top 1%. Right. Okay, so about five years ago, Brianne's grandpa is flying on this plane. Remember the gas prices were like killer high and everybody's complaining about the gas pumps, like 120 bucks about my tank of gas? Well, he's flying with this guy and he's like, I'm flying because like it's super expensive for me to like gas up my yacht. Yacht. <laughs> what are you doing on the plane? He's like, he's like, well, how much does it cost you to fill up my yacht? He's like, well, I've got a cheap yacht. It cost me fifty thousand dollars to fill up the gas tank. And he's sitting there going, what? So like, he's telling us when he gets home. So I was sitting with this guy, and he said it cost fifty thousand dollars to fill up the gas tank in his yacht. I'm like, no way. So I go on, and so there, you know, you know those like pictures you see them of like the super yachts. I'm like, okay, what's it cost? So. They estimate it takes about four and a half million dollars to maintain that boat. Everybody complains how much boats are just like pits of money. Yeah, not like four point five million dollars pit of money. Okay, uh, these these those super yachts that like the super rich are all into. It costs. He was off four hundred thousand dollars to fill up the gas tank. Like what is that? It costs thirty five thousand dollars. No, three hundred fifty thousand dollars for docking fees. And the crew, because like you're not gonna take care of the boat, tell them to take care of the boat for you. So the crew and the captain, the people keeping up your, that's like 1.4 million a year to staff it. So, okay, and that's not even talking about that was just like maintaining the boat that you actually just finished buying for 40 million dollars. Like I'm rolling in my Kia Optima, thinking I'm hot stuff, right? Like woohoo! Like it's <laughs> like this. Okay, these yachts—they're not even primary vehicles. I mean, cars some private jets, and then you get a yacht. Like, what type of money are we talking about when that's what you're rolling around with as, like, a third-tier traveling option? Okay. And, and these, these wealthy people are spending this money. It's like, like, you buy a new iPad, like, ouch, but, yeah, it's cool. It makes my life feel better. Like, that's what they're, like, that's the equivalent to them and their yachts. Like, they're buying a yacht, and to them it's, like, the price of a new computer, relatively speaking. What type of wealth is that? Like, could you imagine just all of a sudden having, like, that type of money? Okay, so imagine there's this lady, and she's, she's coming to terms with the fact that she's probably not going to get married. She's in a successful career. She's quite good at her career. And one day she's at this conference, and she meets this nice guy, middle-aged. They're talking. They hit it off. He says, hey, want to go get lunch? Say, sure. And two things come out of that lunch. First... She finds she kind of likes this guy. And this guy is like single and he's been waiting for the right one. And you're like, oh, really? Hmm. Right? So they, they, they're hitting it off and they feel like, you know, they may have found the one. And the second thing they find out, that she finds out, he has a yacht. <laughs> like, oh, he's got money. Okay, so fast forward or so. A year. They're dating. He's flying to her town. He's not being flashy with his money. He's just coming and spending time with her. Uh, she's been pretty purposeful about not getting caught up with the money because she's marrying the man, not the money, right? So she's not getting caught up in the wealth. But, you know, one night, things are going well, and he takes her out to this restaurant uptown. Everything's going perfect, you know, so perfect that, you know, she starts getting the sneak of suspicion. He might propose, and usually when women start thinking a guy's going to propose, it's usually because he's going to propose. And sure enough, like, he's got the ring, he's on his knee, proposing, it's sweet. It's perfect. She says yes. And after, like, kind of like the giddiness of it, it starts wearing down. He gets kind of serious and says, so, you know, you're going to have to sell your house. And you're probably going to have to sell your car. And um, I'll have your private secretary call you uh, to plan the wedding. And, by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I've got this private island I would like you to... Uh, do the wedding, and I'll fly your family out and your friends. I'll, I'll pay for everything. We'll have this wedding on this nice island. And, and I, I figured one of the reasons that you might have a hard time, like you really like your job, I was really wondering if you wouldn't want to 
help me with my job, like be a partner or something, help me with my business, stuff like that. And, and then it hits her. All the benefits and privileges that are hers because of the marriage. She wasn't marrying the man for the money, but oh man, the money. <laughs> like what, what is that? Her life has changed. So she goes and she's going to sell that house. I think she's like concerned that she's getting the best market price. She's going to sell her car. You think she's upset about that? No. Like she's, she's, got, she's got way more than that. She's not losing a thing. She's gaining everything. But she's doing this, right? And her friends are like, you know, are you sure this guy's got a yacht? Are you sure he's got a private island? I tried Googling this guy. Couldn't find him. Like, are you sure? You're crazy. Are you sure you want to do this? So I'll, I'll kind of stop there. But, like, in a sense... It's a good analogy. It's not perfect. But you see the parallels. Like believers, we are the bride of Christ. There's a day, he says, that we are united with him, and we're going to get all the benefits therewith. He, he set his love on us. He's redeemed us. He's secured us. And the Bible tells you things. That, like, I would never say this, but Jesus said it, and God tells it, so I guess it's okay to say it. 1 Timothy 2.12 says that we will reign with Christ. I have no business reigning with Christ. But it says that when you're united with him in the kingdom of his Father, you will reign with Christ. It's saying in 1 Corinthians, why are you bickering? Why are you arguing? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? I had a clue I was going to be judging angels. Like last time I looked, like animals, mankind, angels, God. I have no business judging the angels. But somehow he brings us into it. And, and it's as real as, and it's as sure as the air you breathe in your next PG&E bill coming. It's going to happen. Every marriage is pointing to this reality. Every, every single who's never been married probably waits for it with more anticipation and will probably enjoy it even more for the wait. But at the end of the day, like the true marriage is between the lamb and his bride. So if your heart is captured with that, if, if your hope, if, you, if like what's your security, what's your hope? Your pension plan? I mean, you'll have money when you die, probably. I mean, you'll die. What's your hope established in? Are you assured that you are the object of the love of God, that he loves you, that he loves you with an unstoppable love. And if you're sure of that, if, that, if, that's, like, if that's permeating your heart, if, that, if, that, if that's what thrills you, then it's going to change you. You'll be cashed in. It, it, will, it will change the way that we wake up in the morning and say it's a new day. It will change the way that we approach our job. We're not serving ourselves, we're serving our king. It's going to change the way we think of our money, our resources, our time. Like, you're freed up. You're freed up to love people. You're freed up to give money. You're freed up to give your time. Because you're not too worried about building up your kingdom to be as big as possible on this earth. Why would you? It's like, it's like that, the wife being engaged to this guy who's got the island and you're all fixated on a remodel. Like, really? <laughs> you're going to sell a house in a month, and you're gonna, like, don't worry about the remodel. You'll be fine. It's, it's like our, it's our lives. Like, like, he provides for us. He takes care of us. He gives us what he needs, what we need. But we're getting so much more, so don't get so wrapped up in it that it captures your heart. One of the things about sin, one of the things about sin, oftentimes the thing that is causing you to sin in your life, they're not in and of themselves bad things. Sin, for the most part, uh, like the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, like the things that the world's all caught up into. Like the word used for like lust right there, it's not, it's not technically a bad word. Like you, it's not like we think lust in the media, like, like no way. That's, that's not quite, it doesn't have that negative connotation in the original language. But what it, what it refers to is like a deep, deep, deep desire. You deeply desire things of the flesh. You deeply desire uh, riches and seeing beautiful things. 
In other words, it's not that you love bad things, although you do at times. The thing is that you love good things too much. You're too wrapped up with them. And so, and so God would say, at the end of the day, when you sin, he, he ta- talks about this the whole way through the Old Testament. It's like you're committing adultery. It's like you're in love with these things and you're getting happiness from these things. Instead of finding your happiness ultimately in God, you desire them too much. Jesus is saying, look, if you love me, if you're loved by me, if, you, if your focus and your hope is in the kingdom that I will bring, not the kingdom that you will build, then you'll be willing to put all this aside, that, that strong control, that strong desire for these things will just kind of fade and fade away. Change your perspective on suffering. One of the things I began to realize as Christians, especially going to Matthew, Christians are called to put themselves in like really hard circumstances. Like Christ asks you to step into people's pain with them and be inconvenienced by them. Doing good's never timely, convenient. Like, oh, you know what? You know, I had five minutes. Let me help you. Like it never feels that way. It, it's always it always hurts, and you you. Get involved in these people's lives, and it's messy, and it's hurting. And you, at one point, you just want to pull out and say, oh, enough, I'm just going to go be happy and watch Netflix. But Jesus says, look, love me, be like me, you'll jump right in. And you'll be able to say, like Paul, that all the suffering in this world is a, a light and momentary affliction that is preparing future glory for us. It's preparing for us future glory. And when your health's failing and you're sick and relatives are dying and it begins to dawn on you that you're going to die and you're dying, you're reminded that even though your outer self is wasting away, that Christ, through his spirit, is renewing your inner self day by day by day. And, and, and somehow joy keeps growing and growing and growing. And it's a fortress of the fact that you know that you're going to inherit something eternal. Now, to be honest, are our hearts really captured by these things? Because knowing myself, sometimes I doubt the love of Christ. Sometimes I'm just apathetic, just don't care. Too choked up by the cares of this world. Too tired, tired, tired children who wake you up and just too tired to care and want to like invest in these things. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And really, this is a great application of what Jesus is saying. So one morning, I'm, I'm waking up, and I'm thinking, like, I like seriously have not done devotions all week, and it's this Friday. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be a holy Christian, I've got to do something for my devotions. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And I'm not really feeling it. So I'm, like, I'm going to go to an easy book. I'm going to go to James. <laughs> Silly me. And so I'm like reading through, and I read this verse, and it just hits me like, you know, I pretend like I care about the poor and the needy. I pretend like it, but it's like it's all like I think it's just a facade to make me feel good. Like I care because when it actually comes down to it, like what am I actually doing to help? Not much. Maybe like 35 bucks to a kid and like the, someplace, Fashion International. Like, that's literally all I could come up with. <laughs> like I sponsor a couple kids. Like that's my way of dealing with the poor and the needy. And so like it just made me like, what's stopping me? And then it hit me. It's the second, half, the second part. Being undefiled by the world. Like, oh, gosh. I'm just like being defiled by the world. I'm just, I'm just grabbing onto this, grabbing onto that, bigger this, bigger that, more of this, more of that, burning up all my time pursuing all these things. I lost sight of the pearl. I lost sight of the kingdom. I was like trying to build my little kingdom here on earth. So I'm like, okay, you know what? Yeah, I need this verse. I pray a prayer, something like, God, I am a registrant, and I fell asleep. No joke. Like, my devotions, it's all of five minutes. I fall asleep. The girls come in. They say, Daddy, Daddy. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I'm like, got enough time 
to like give them a snack, put them in front of Octonauts, educational is fine, put them in front of Octonauts, like grab a meal and like out the door to a meeting. And that's all I have time for. And I'm like, great. <laughs> like, great attempt at making it life. But, but God takes mustard seeds and he makes them turn into big things. Because that day, like he calls on me, as it were, puts something in my life, says, you're going to do this. And strangely, I say, yeah, I'm totally going to do this. So, I feel like we need to pray like the psalmist. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Just drag me down the path, God. Because I really, that's what we're down to. Drag me down this path. And he does it. That's why he gave you. He, Jesus didn't say, I saved you, see ya. Saved you up in heaven. He said, you need my spirit. If this is going to work out, I need to be in you doing this. And so he starts producing fruit. He starts producing excitement. He starts making you like give up things. Like the, the thing that he was putting in my life. It's going to be inconvenient, like seriously inconvenient. I'm going to have to like, give up Netflix at night, I think. Like, <laughs> like this is really inconveniencing me. <laughs> but okay, I, I got you. But the thing, that, the thing that I think was driving and motivating it most of all is saying, oh man, this is gospel opportunity. I can show God to be really good today. Like, where did that come from? I can tell you, it does not come from me. This is alien force, foreign force inside of me producing things in me. That's all I can attribute it to. So, we pray, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. To which we turn to this last parable, verse 47. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind, and when it is full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throwing them into and throw the evil into the fiery furnace in a place that there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the first thing that hits you with this parable is like Jesus you're just talking about this. Like two parables ago you're talking about the wheat and the tares. Like this is the same parable. There's a difference. I mean besides the difference of picture, there's a difference. He identifies the people he separates specifically, it's the evil and the righteous. That's what characterizes the difference here. There are evil people and there's righteous. To which we ask, judgment upon the wicked, sounds great. How do I be righteous? Who's righteous? Who are the right people? Now, there are a lot of good people who do what seems to be righteous things, but don't believe in God. I think of Mark Bernioff. Benioff, Benioff. Mark Benioff. I call him Benioff. Bernioff, it's Benioff. Mark Benioff, who myself I feel particularly grateful for. He's a CEO of a Silicon Tech company. He's worth something like $3.5 billion. And his companies, this is not his philanthropy, in his companies, he makes the company give 1% of its earnings to philanthropy, 1% of its workers' hours to philanthropy, and 1% of his products, he just gives away for free. That's his company. He himself, he's given recently $200 million to Benioff's, uh, well, to the UCSF Children's Hospital. And it's now called the Benioff's Children's Hospital. It's a hospital that my daughter went to when she was sick, and uh, there's other people here. Their children have flown to Benioff's Hospital. And it's, if you go there, it's state-of-the-art. they got robots delivering medicine in the hallways. And you're going, like, robots? Like, the future is here. And it's because this man just generously gives up his money. So I kind of looked into him. And as far as I can tell, he is no lover of God. So what is he? Is he righteous or is he evil? And this is, a, this is what makes this gospel so scandalous. This is what makes, Christian, this is what makes Christianity so hard to palate. Because you're going to look at good people and God's going to say, they look righteous. They're wicked. They're wicked. Because in their hearts, they're no lovers of me. They don't love me and my goodness. 
They're not motivated by holiness. They're not motivated by these things. Ultimately, and in a sense, in a sense, you have to trust God. Because he sees deeper in the heart than we see. He sees deeper into my to my heart than I see. I can't even tell you what's going in my heart. What makes you think I could figure out what's going in my wife's heart and my kids' heart and like your heart? Can't. So we need someone with infinite wisdom who could plumb the depths of us and say, I know it's wrong, and it's right here. Wrong motivation, idolatry, self-promotion, pride. I, I remember listening to this. Uh, there was this uh, mayor who just did tons of good for a city. He's getting interviewed. He's kind of like, you know, 70s. He's getting interviewed, and they say, like, why did you do it? Why did you do it? And he goes, honestly, I love the power. To be honest, I love the power, and I like the feeling that, like, when I show up at 4 a.m. at a fire, the people are like, what a great mayor you are. He's like, he's like, just, and it's like, and I bet you everybody deep down inside feels the same way. But I think he's just being honest. And God says that's what's going on. Who are the righteous? Because God says at the moment of our inception, the moment that we exist, at this point, we are born in iniquity. We're born just with guilt. We're going to just head off in the wrong direction. When the kingdom of heaven comes in its purity, do you not want dying? Do you not want death? Do you don't want corruption? You don't want social injustice? You don't want these things? <laughs> He's got to take care of it. He's going to judge it. He's going to purge it. It's going to be gone. That's why you see these fish being thrown back in the sea or these, these uh, tares being thrown to the fire. He's got to purge it if it's going to happen. Who are the righteous? So in Matthew, if you haven't been picking this up, I'll just say it again. And this is the Bible. The righteous are those who are accepted by God. The righteous are the people who, when they stand before the throne of God, God says, not guilty. No, you've done good things. When we know for a fact we have not done good things. Now, it's very easy to like misinterpret what Jesus is saying and saying um, that he is simply concerned with ethical virtue and holding up virtuous people who are, who are righteous by their own self-effort. We know that's not the case because Jesus says that's nobody. But throughout the gospel, there's an emphasis on the poor in spirit, the broken, the tax collector saying, God, I'm broken, forgive me. It's the people who fall on their faces for God and admit that there is a problem. Those are the ones the Bible starts calling righteous, righteous. They are justified. Why? Because... God gives them the righteousness of his son. When we shine like the sun, it's not our light. It's God's light in us. But it's our light. You see how that works? We would not shine like the sun. We'd be like those like dead black holes in the middle of the universe, sucking up light. <laughs> like We'd be like the total way out. We don't shine like sun. But God gives us his light, gives us his glory, and it's his, but we shine like the sun. So we are iniquity, we're like little black holes. He gives us his righteousness, and we're righteous. So you want this kingdom? Do you want it? You can't afford it, but you can have it. Because our hope is anchored in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, one that God promised would come conquered sin and he's coming again. Our faith is anchored in his righteousness that he's going to produce in us through his power, through his spirit. Like he tells us in John, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, that is the one who bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. So he invites us. Come, abide with me. Come, eat with me. Come to my table. Enjoy me, and you will bear fruit. So that is what we do now at communion. So if the ushers will come and the worship team.
read, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For you, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would make us a people that are zealous for good works. Make us like you. Lord, let us lay down our lives for those who would call themselves our enemies. Let us lay down our lives for our neighbors. Lord, let us be a church that is full of good work. Lord, why? Because we are so captured by you. Lord, I pray that you give us desires to come to your word. And when we're in the word, Lord, that you would open it up and reveal glorious truths from it. Lord, we pray that you would make us to know your way and teach us to walk on your path. Lord, let your light shine through us, Lord, so they may glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. And we ask for this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, on whom we Remember on whom we stake our hope and our future until he comes again. Amen. Please stand as we close.